I started going to the group two months ago. It was well overdue. Everyone knew I'd had a problem for the better part of my life. Most of all, me. Since college, I told myself that I could drink socially. But the next morning would turn into boozing and playing music for everyone with hangovers. And before I knew it, I'd forget who'd won the football games. And later, I'd forget who'd played that Sunday. And then still later... How I had even gotten home. I lied to everyone about how much I drank and how often I was drinking and who I was drinking with. That was bad since most nights, and to tell the truth, most days, I was drinking by myself. College ended, and so too did the contact with all of my friends. And looking back on it now, I realize they had ended it with me. And yet I kept it up. I began seeing the writing on the wall. Hangovers beginning. That's a hard thing to do at 22. The liver's working at a clip in those years. It's clearing beers and shots like a sprinter clearing hurdles in a straightaway. And yet I was bogged down in a fog of Tillamore dew and stumbling through turf swamps of Glenlivet. And somewhere during that time, I began to romanticize it. Like I was Hemingway and Joyce and Elliot Smith twined together with Tom Waitsey and Bob Wire. The irony that that way lies madness, depression, death, and all those nameless millions who have stumbled to their fate believing the same thing, that they were eloquently fragile geniuses, was lost entirely on me. Think of all the millions who have dreamed the same drunken delusion, who have fallen by the wayside, receding into the background, and not known to any of us except to their families and friends and lovers as a kind of pitiful, boring tragedy who at one point has to be stepped over as they move on with their lives. Like a homeless man sleeping in a doorway that you cautiously step over on your way to work. Still, I functioned soberly enough and I could get sober by the end of the day working construction. And I could stay sober longer in the evenings by attending night classes. Within about two years, I had graduated from paramedic school. I celebrated with a bottle of Jameson and a gallon of Burgundy that I had bought on the pretext that it was cooking wine. When I didn't pass the interview or I missed an entrance exam, I'd ease my pain with anything I had laying around or I could buy around the corner. I told myself it was all right because I was fighting for something meaningful. I was dedicating myself to saving people. Somehow risking my life to save others would make it all right that I was killing myself off slowly. 
I was still clinging to that same tragic hero story. I started working as a medic in Rio County in 06, and that's when everything started to ramp up for me. I'm what they call a black cloud. I'm a shit magnet, really. In my first month on the job, I had two major car accident traumas, a shooting with a collapsed lung I had to decompress, two cardiac arrests, and an abruptio placenta, stillborn baby. People started looking for other partners when they knew they were going to be with me on the box. What was apparent after that February, aside from the fact that I was cradling drink on my off days, was that Rio County was one meat grinder of a city. And that I was good at my job. I got the innovations when the room was musty and cluttered and you were working in darkness because the tenants had let the overhead light burn out years ago. I could start IVs while we were driving lights and sirens on the gravel hard pack that connected Bottle Rock Road to Highway 409. I didn't flinch. Even though I was usually drenched in sweat most days, either from the job or the temporary withdrawal. But I did my job well. And I was proud of myself. I celebrated. But there's a little bit more to it. There's something I believed and still believe. I can sense things. Or I can feel things beyond the usual. I don't know that for sure. But I'm like an overly sensitive camera lens with its aperture fully open. Or a tuning fork continually catching the ambient vibrations all around. I can smell someone's hormones. Fear smells dry and dead on a patient's breath. Like fetid beef jerky. I absorb the emotions of the people around me. And I can almost see a color and a mood from a place. And I can feel things amassing. It's like a drop in the baromic pressure of the atmosphere minutes before a bad call. A dissonant note in the wind song. Something I can't explain but can feel. Something that tells me to collect my breath, stop what I'm doing and listen. So I get on the balls of my feet and keep my glove open. And wait as the pitcher goes into his windup. Whatever it is, I can't pretend it's not there, and it doesn't go away after I finish my shift. At times, I think the drink hones the sense, but mostly it blocks it out. I think that's why I depend on alcohol so much. Yes, I did just say depend on, so there. Alcohol became a kind of mental reset. I could just shut everything off for a night and recall the last week's shifts from a distance and pick off the people who were sticking to me like lint. And I'd lull myself off into an obsidian oblivion. Soon enough, though, it began encroaching into my life, and I'd show up to work unshaven. I had gained weight. I'd sleep on the gurney if I was still spinning. My God, I'm embarrassed to even write that down now. I never drank on the job. At least I can hold on to that. But I have awoken in bed, having slept through the alarm clock, about an hour away from work and the shift beginning in five minutes. That ice-cold panic freezing my blood and drenching me in flop sweat. A cold snowstorm in my head and at the same time a sour growling heat in the belly 
full of cheap rock gut liquor that comes in a plastic grip bottle and says charcoal filtered in bold letters. And still I romanticized it, like this was the price to pay for a hard life of heroism. Mine was a profession of martyrdom. Until finally I just got bored of it. Until maybe it was that same voice or that dog whistle that whispered into my ear, exasperated. Enough. The story I told myself got too delusional. Even I couldn't believe it anymore. Until this is what it really was. I was looking at a sunken-eyed, bloated face in the mirror, and I saw I wasn't sexy at all. I wasn't heroic. I was mediocre. I was mundane and pitiful. That's what I consider my rock bottom. Not the piss in my bed the next morning, or the look at the neighbors when I'm climbing the stairs with a grocery bag that clinks with each step. Or the girlfriend who won't talk to me until the following evening and the fight that lasts two days until I'm swearing up and down it won't happen again. And then after it does, that eventual resoluteness in her eyes when she says she's got to move on for her own sake and she hopes that I finally get some help. I'd think, this isn't heroin. But a drug is a drug is a drug, no matter what name you call it. And so I found a group. I sat in the back in meetings. And then I spoke at one. I just said my name and who I was and that I had a problem. And someone in the back said, you got a solution, bro. And everyone laughed. I smiled thinking this must be an oldie but a goodie here. And it felt good. After one of the evenings, Pat O'Shea had heard me mention that I was a medic. And he told me he was a fireman and there was a group of caregivers that met regularly on Wednesdays down at the Lion Club. He said, I don't think you'd be too surprised to find out how many of us there are. Cops, firemen, EMTs, nurses, doctors, everyone. What we see fucks us up exponentially. He asked if I wanted to attend. I practically leaped at the invitation. I was really excited for the first time in years. Nervous as hell, but that good nervous, like a rookie on the ambulance again. And that brings us to where we are now. I'm transcribing some of the things people talk about in the group. The names have been changed to protect their identities. And I'm hoping it's a way to come to terms with everything and keep me sober. Couple of things. First, I thought once I stopped drinking, I'd lose that edge that ear for hearing the song behind the scenes that gets your hackles up. I used to use that as a reason for drinking, I think. But the truth is, if anything, it's pulsing like it's never done before. And I gotta say, it scares me a little. Because I'm starting to tune into some vibrations that I didn't think possible and that I didn't want to think possible. The other day, there was this kid. But I'll get into that later. The second thing is, there is something going on here in Rio County. It's impossible not to see it, ESP or no. Something beyond the usual chaotic hustle of a big city. The stories I'm hearing from these guys, it's eerie stuff. 
It's not normal stuff. It's not sane. That's mostly why I'm keeping this journal. I have to remember these things because they seem to fly away like monarch butterflies alighting off the trees down in Carmel. And when they go, all I seem to remember are the bare branches of that tree, where moments ago they were all perched, undulating their gold-red wings like autumn leaves. I think there's a song behind this place, and I'm writing the harmonies down, one cryptic note at a time. There's something here I can almost hear whispering back. Maybe this is the song of a real hero's journey, something I've always been searching for, the one I was truly meant to hear. And I'll tell you this, when it's finished, when I have that song, I'm terrified of what I may have to sing. Incident at Pings by Kenneth Allen. I feel like Chinese, Ilion said. I didn't, but with everything, Ilion either got his way or he'd protest. He wouldn't fight you, but he'd go passive aggressive like he'd decide he wasn't hungry just after you had ordered. Like I was saying, he continued, the company's trying to get rid of our lunch breaks now whenever we get down to zero staffing. They're going to pull us out of lunch whenever they need us. Yeah, I get it, I said. But it's not them that need us. It's the people calling with the emergencies that need us, really, if you think about it. No, that's horseshit, man. If they need ambulances, they need to start staffing more of us for the city. Our lunch is part of the union contract. We deserve a break running like this, getting pulled out of the hospitals with patients on the gurneys. They need to staff more of us. Yeah, but the citizens don't understand that, you know. What, whose side do you want? It's a busy city. The company staffs us at low numbers so they can run with as few medics necessary to keep the system just barely running so they don't have to pay any more than they absolutely need to. It's a fucking racket. You know it. Yeah. I deserve a lunch. We deserve a guaranteed lunch break. And Turn left here. Lunch breaks, period. And don't get me started on the people. If they would stop calling for the febrile seizures and the broken toes... We turn, slow down. Turn in, you're turning left in the shopping complex. I know, E. Slow down. If they learn to take care of a few broken toes or drive themselves... Turn left. Drive themselves, we'd have plenty of rigs left for the really important calls. Turn left. I'm turning left, E. All right, you're going to overshoot it. The system's broken, Gary, and no one wants to spend the real money to get it fixed. You get a couple more ambulance on the road, we got a lunch break. That's all I'm saying. There's a spot right in front. Park right there. The red zone? Yeah, we're an ambulance. You can park there. That's for us. We ordered from a menu mostly in Mandarin. There were one or two words in English like chicken with veg or pot sticker. But mostly you ordered by numbers. Here, get his eye. We can skip the line. Come on. Come on what? They can call us back any time they want, right? I gotta eat. Yeah, but I don't like cutting in the uniform, man. Dude, I'm starving. There, he sees me. Follow me. Ping! 
The gallery of people in line gave us a smattering of expressions. Some smiled, but most of them looked affronted and put out. One at the front actually sidled in front of Elon when he got to the counter. Excuse, excuse me, medic. Hi, thanks. Thank you. He harumped and put his elbows on the aluminum top. Yeah, I'll have the princess chicken. What number? I don't know the princess chicken. And what are you getting? Get the Mongolian beef. Then we can share. I don't want Mongolian beef. Then get the beef with string bean. Then I'm getting the beef with string bean, but not because you want it. Because I want it. Right on, man. Beef with string beans. Spicy, please. Mm -mm. No, not spicy. It fucks with my gut. Spicy. Mm -hmm. You're not getting my princess chicken, then. I don't want princess chicken. Well, good, because you're not going to have any. The radio crackled. Medic 70, code 3. God damn it! You see? Now we're not going to eat. I'm fucking... Shh. Medic 70, go ahead. Hang on, ping. Elian had turned to the line of people shaking his head, imploring them. It's a medic alarm, I said. The lady probably pushed it accidentally, putting on her blouse or something. It better be. Ping, get him started. We'll be right back. Fuck. I'm not going to be to help you on this call. I'm just letting you know in advance. He was ringing his shirt collar. Thanks, man. Dude, I am fucking starving. Yeah, we all got it, I said, waving to the line of patrons. Halfway to the ambulance, the radio called again. Medic 70, you can stand down. Accidental activation. Medic 70 copy, show us available. Are you happy, I said. Well, when I'm full, I looked at him. Garrett, this is exactly what I'm talking about. We get these bullshit calls and we go hungry. We're getting the food. This time, come on. You get everything settled. It was a gentleman dressed in a black suit, sitting alone at one of the tables. He looked to be in his late 50s, early 60s. His eyes were sunken. His hair combed earlier, was now frazzled, like he had pulled on the bangs and slept on the back. A cowlick sent the hairs at one part in a hectic sprawl. We got it situated, sir. No emergency. False alarm. Ilian said, pushing past him as the man stood. His chair fell to the floor, and he took no notice. The crowd turned to us. Took your time getting out of here, huh? No hurry. Well, we, uh... I saw the crazy in his eyes a moment before I saw him cock his fist and swing. I didn't dodge it because I didn't believe it was actually happening. Is he swinging at me? Gong! It landed on my left cheek. It was a cold, damp thud. I saw red stars and my face got hot. Yep, he punched me. Just taking your sweet time. Nobody needs you. He wound up and swung another haymaker. I dodged it easily, and the man spun around and fell to the ground. Nobody's dying, huh? As far as you know. He was on his knees. Elion finally turned around and saw the commotion. He began calling in the 1199, officer in trouble. Fourth and Alameda, inside Pings. We're in Pings! Send everyone! The man's coat had come down around his shoulders. His top button had popped. He was panting like a lion. 
Just take your time. Eat your Chinese food. He started reaching into his pocket with both hands, tearing it open. He pulled out a knife. It was a Swiss Army knife. I held out one hand in a stop gesture. My other hand wrapped around the nearest chair. I got purchase and raised it between him and myself. He's the lion. I'm the lion tamer. The man watched this and then looked at the crowd that had cleared a half circle around us both. And he let out a scream of such pain and terror that I felt my guts chill. The scream was a shredding of sanity. Any animal on earth knows that sound. It's of total loss. Loss of life. Loss of rationality. Loss of mind. He pawed at the Swiss Army knife and was able to open up one blade. It was the serrated saw blade. Hey, hey, sir, sir. He stared at it absently and then held it out to me. It actually looked sad and out of place in his soft hand. This man in a two-piece suit, brandishing a knife I had owned at eight. My heart caught up to itself, and I gripped the chair more assuredly. The cops are coming, man. Put down the knife. He belted out another scream, this one more voluntary and purposeful, and then buried the knife into his left forearm. The knife rested all the way up to the red hilt. He stared at it, panting. Elion came over. Put the knife down, sir. It's in his arm. Tackle him. Just don't do anything, sir. Laura. Laura! He screamed. And then his whole body buckled and slumped over. Soon he started crying. His shoulders shook in waves. Laura! <laughs> ah, Laura! Many sirens in the distance were getting closer. The world was coming. I walked cautiously forward, still holding the chair low, but not defensively. He was a heap of black, and a steady line of red blood poured out of the cuff of his left sleeve. It was like the Wicked Witch of the West after Dorothy has doused her with water. No more wickedness left. No lion. Just the ruins of a man. Ping, I said. Napkin and chopsticks, please. Ping's mouth hung open, looking at the man, then me, then the man. A napkin and chopsticks. He got into action, scrambling around then still standing well out of reach, held them up to me. I crossed the floor and took them. Sir, you're bleeding. I'm going to help you. The police cruisers pulled up outside, doors opened and slammed, and a volley of footsteps slapped across the concrete. Hands up! Hands up where I can see them! Hands! Hands, motherfucker! The last was Elion. It's okay. Everything's fine. There's no danger. He stabbed himself. He's bleeding. Sir, just... Here, let me see your arm. The hilt of the knife was beating gently with his pulse. He had hit an artery, I thought, clinically. I twisted the napkin into a rat tail and wrapped it around the left arm, just below the biceps, and tucked the chopsticks underneath. 
I then twisted them around twice and felt for a radio pulse. It had stopped. The blood still ran steadily, but the knife handle had stopped bouncing. I nodded the chopsticks in place. A tourniquet? You're making a tourniquet for him? Shut up, I said without looking up. The man watched me staring at his arm like it wasn't his own. Then his head fell forward. He went back to sobbing, a quiet, broken sound. We took him. We packed him up, put leather restraints on his other wrist and both ankles. I made a sling for the other arm. The knife I left in. The hospital would take it out carefully during surgery to avoid any further damage to tissues. Throughout the whole trip, the man just stared vacantly at the ambulance doors. I didn't ask him anything. I didn't have to. At one point, the man said as we were driving down the highway towards Mercy Hospital. She said she wanted to be a doctor or a dancer. Oh, God. It took me a long time to write the report. No charges were pressed. My face was a little red and swollen, but not bruised. When I got back to the ambulance, Elian had finished straightening up the back and was sitting shotgun. You all right, Gare? Yeah. I sniffed back a tear and wiped my cheek, making believe it was from the punch. At last, Elian said to me, Hey. Yeah. I bet if we go back to Ping's, they'll give us that princess chicken on the house. Family Tree by Kenneth Allen There are many times in life when we encounter insanity, but we pass over it in haste. Often we do so not due to its gruesomeness, but because of its pitiful aspect and our desire to deny it into our lives. We couch ourselves in propriety and decency and so look away. But deep in our recesses, something revolts and refuses its entrance into our consciousness. The house was an old heap of a Victorian. If it were the embodiment of a human, it would be that of a figure with scoliosis. If it were the shape of a face, it would be that of an old man's who has suffered a stroke, one side wonky and hanging, droop-faced. It marred the eyes, and so it caused a kind of subconscious but nevertheless purposeful overlooking by the mind of the onlooker. As one drove down this street, your gaze passing from one house to the next, this crumbling state of a house would pucker the eyes, like biting into a lemon or smelling a roadkill skunk. It was a mutation of a home, and it caused you to think of it as a defective a cripple of its former regality and potential. One would look away under the pretext that the next house was of more interest. 
but in truth, it was to avoid having that image burned into your memory, where it would awaken you at 4 a.m. in the midst of a nightmare, not with a scream, but with the trembling wonderment as to who lived inside those walls, and it would fascinate you, dangerously causing you to wonder about those shapes inside and out, until sympathetically a blue morning light yawned from the east. I would have looked at that facade much the same way, eyes taking in one pleasant structure after the next, then skimming over the broken tooth porch, the jaundiced window curtains, half drawn down like the palsied eyelids of an old man, and then anxiously looking beyond, anticipating a clean, manicured home just a few yards down the street. I may have, in fact, done that driving through the neighborhood on the ambulance many times before. But on this day, we pulled up in front for a call. Two old women lived there, and we were sent to assess the elder. She had been feeling weak and was slowly declining in health and mindfulness. The younger of the two said she was her sister, and they had inherited the house from a well-known family many, many years before. The younger was in her seventies. The infirmed was in what seemed like late eighties or nineties. Like most Victorians, as one walks inside, there's a large staircase that leads to the upper bedrooms. Below are the entertaining rooms. I could see the landing beyond the stairs. It was darkened, and a love seat covered in a bedspread sat atop it, presumably for one to catch their breath before making their way to bed. There was a chandelier overhanging the entryway, made of crystal and laced with cobwebs. It appeared no one had been upstairs in quite some time. They had made one of the downstairs parlors into a bedroom for the invalid older of the two. We were all ushered, a fire company, my partner and I, into the room off to the left of the entry doors. There, laying in the middle of the room in a queen bed, was the older woman. She was skeletal. She had long, thin arms that she held out above her, reaching out for her sister, who leaned down to her and, cupping her face with one hand, whispered loving reassurances in her ear. The woman in bed looked exhausted, but not hurting. She seemed in complete acceptance and surrender to her state and fate. Her expression was that of absent amusement for the people in the room and her sister's lisping assurances. My mood and that of the crews soon became a similar amazed confusion as we saw the room into which we had stepped. Growing up through the floorboards in one corner of the room was a plant. It was a cross between an ivy and a spider plant, from what I remember, because it had battened onto the plaster and bloomed tendrils all down its side. 
The floor had been intentionally broken, and the trunk of the plant had grown through the hole from the basement and was now growing up along one corner of the room and along the ceiling above. It hung like a canopy above the bed. The two women in the middle were framed by this, like two children or lovers, while the rest of us looked transfixed by this plant that was now becoming the living walls of the room. As I stepped into the parlor, my foot sunk into the ground, not like I had stepped into sagging timbers or unstable planks, but with a soft give. I looked down and I saw that covering the floor from one side to the other was soil. The two had covered the floor in dirt. It was presumably so the plants could grow throughout it. We love nature. It feels so natural in here now, don't you think? We just like to be close to the nature. We stared at each other, not saying a word, and then to the walls, and then to the ground, and back at each other. The boards below groaned as one of us shifted uneasily. I had the urge to step back, out, turn, and leave. It was as if we had stepped into a pocket of reality that should be backed out of cautiously before something we didn't know or should ever imagine fell upon us. Still, the love the two women had for each other was palpable. The place still felt safe enough even warm and inviting with a kind of exotic attraction. Like any good trap, I thought, and laughed. So we checked her blood pressure and pulse and blood sugar. Everything seemed stable. No emergency. She said she wasn't in pain. She said she'd just as soon stay here in bed, but her sister was worried and wanted her to be seen in a hospital. And so she was humoring her because she loved her sister. And all the while, I kept glancing up around my shoulder at the plant that was even now surrounding the room and this bed and its octopian arms. And yet, such love in the room between the two. The sun shined outside and cast a shaft of light through the half-shaded window and illuminated a circle of sapling plants newly sprouting on the floor. What a crumbling masterpiece, I thought. What could this place have been if it weren't for the fact that they had inherited it? And they didn't even think to maintain it, but instead were transforming it into something different. Nature and wildlife was not encroaching into it, but they had introduced it into the interiors, and it was now reaching outwards towards the lawn and bushes and trees outside. The plant had taken root and would eventually entwine the house. It would insinuate the crawl spaces. It would grasp and sprawl between the dead spaces in the walls, twisting around the electrical knob and tubing 
strangle the pipes for the water they possessed, filling the rooms, shedding leaves on carpet, getting bigger and bigger, until one day that tree would be wearing the house like a garment that it would finally shed and grow out of, and once more be a part of its brethren outside. My thoughts swarmed, like the seed of the house had been planted in me. The thought would not stop growing and twisting around as I listened to the women and looked at the tree at this very second stretching its limbs with maybe a sound like a whisper as it converted sunlight energy into movement. You could do this to a house? How could it exist inside something so reasonable and right-angled? I was startled out of this trance by one of the crew members. He had begun to look around the house, presumably on the auspices of finding out some kind of fire tactic strategy if and when this house finally went up. These are indeed the houses where fires occur. The lack of upkeep on the place and the not-so-sane state of the tenants make it so. He had found the door to the basement and was shining his flashlight down the stairs. The woman in bed, who was all but sleeping at this point, awoke and crooked a bony finger in his direction. Young man, my husband would not like it if he knew you were snooping downstairs. Everyone turned to her at once. Is your husband here? I asked. She kept her head fixed in the direction of the crew member, but her eyes went diffuse like she was thinking carefully on what she had said and what she should say next. Then her head turned and her gaze fell upon me, and my heart fluttered and then stopped. No, he's not, but he wouldn't appreciate it. He doesn't care for nosiness. She didn't so much as blink. There was a long moment where forces gathered within the room and the house surrounding us seemed to hold its breath. My neck prickled and a thought crossed my mind insane and all at once. The plant had had the time it needed to set the ambush. The women were just some dancing, flirting lure and it now would ensnare us like a flytrap. And I heard, absolutely heard, the sound of the branches bending down, thrumming and whispering, and would soon tickle the hackles raised on my neck, then twist around it entirely and choke me off from this world forever. I would see the crew running to tear it off me, hear their screaming, as the images in my eyes became red, pulsing orbs. And then, as the tunnel enclosed, I would faintly hear the women triumphantly laughing, laughing, laughing. A single brown crepe leaf drifted down from the ceiling. It landed in the bedridden woman's hair, startling her from her stone-faced gaze.
She picked it out and stared distantly at it, a wan smile trembling on her lips. And then she giggled and laid back down in bed. The house and all of us within it exhaled. We scooped her up and took her out in a very bright, very yellow gurney into the sunshine and the rest I forget. And that would be the end of the story if it were not for the dreams I still sometimes have and what I learned from one of the crewmen when I saw him a few months later on another call. I got to tell you about that woman. Ah, shit, what? I said. I know. We went back to the firehouse and we're talking it over in dinner. One of the guys on the truck knew her family. He said that the husband disappeared about 40 years ago. Everyone thinks that he left the wife when she began going batshit. Sounds like an asshole. Still, I can see what he was thinking. I know, but that's not all of it. The two women, the two sisters, they're not sisters. They're mother and daughter. Then why did they say they were sisters? The story goes, maybe they were. Get me? He wasn't such a good guy by all accounts. A lot of kinky shit going on in that house. And then one day, he's gone. And they're left alone with the money, with the house, and with each other. And that's what wakes me and keeps me up all night until the blue light peeks around the window shades. Always too early and just as I'm nodding off again. Maybe they were mother and daughter. Maybe they were sisters. Maybe they were both. And maybe the husband didn't like nosiness. Maybe he wouldn't have minded if we had looked around the basement. Just that one place. Just that one time. Oh well. He doesn't sound like the kind of guy I want to do favors for anyways. I hope those two are doing all right. Such love. The Silwa by Kenneth Allen. I tripped over a chair coming in, stinking like booze. They'd know. I didn't care. I was a bellowing freight train of combustible fumes. I had to tell them about my call, and I had to hear what they'd say about it. I was like a petulant child looking back on it now. But if you're not allowed to drink after what had happened, then when could you? It's why God created fermentation. Terry Bedrock Bedrosian was a few rows in front of me. His shoulders and arms were draped over chairs on either side of him and made them look dollhouse-sized. 
He had played college ball at UCLA and he even looked like a Bruin. His square head turned glacially in my direction, looking over one hummock of his shoulder. His brows furrowed and blue glass-cutting eyes discerned me while a corner of his lips sneered. Oh, you smell it? I said. His head turned then and resettled itself over the mountainous frame with a single shake of reproach. Fine. Let's see what he says after I tell the story. The rest of the group turned then and Mike Epstein, who was speaking about his son's birthday barbecue on Saturday, stopped mid-sentence. Well, you look like you smell, my friend. You fell off again, eh? Oh, you want to hear about it? Not particularly. Well, you're going to. And with that, I unloaded. Two nights ago, we went on a kid, 18 or 20, dead, down at the dumps. The sanitation guys found him because the seagulls were picking at his corpse. They couldn't even scare him off with those exploding cap gun rounds they use. He was probably two or three days dead, I'd say. Figured drug-related, a bad strain had hit the streets a week or so ago, and we'd gotten a lot of ODs. So Dickie, my EMT, had gone back to the rig. The stink of the whole scene was making him nauseous. And I was just going to drape a trauma blanket on him and run back to join him. When it happened. So... So every time I get a dead person, I say a little prayer over him. I don't care what you think. It's just my thing. I say, basically, I hope you went in peace, and I hope you're in a better place, yada, yada, yada. May God's love be with you on your travels. It's just something I do. It helps me deal with everything. So I'm finishing up the prayer, and I start covering him. And he starts shaking. It was like vibrations, but like soft, minute, almost unnoticeable tremors rolling all over his body. And the sun's going down now. Now listen, I've seen seizures, and these are they're much more obvious than this. They're, they're violent, they're voluntary, and you've got to be alive to have seizures. This guy's been old dead for a couple days now. It's like he was sitting on top of a generator or an earth mover was nearby, kind of shaking, you know. But there's no generator, and the nearest tractor is over behind a pile of trash about 100 yards away. And it's hours after the dumps is closed. And I keep staring at him and squinting and seeing if I can see it. And maybe my eyes are playing a trick because the sun's going down. But then the seagulls start up. They all start screeching and they take off all at once, flying through the air. I'm talking all of them. The whole place is swarming with seagulls. They're crossing over the shades in the sun. And I can't see anything anymore. It's like I'm completely enveloped in this. And I'm watching them and they start fighting in the sky, tearing at each other and biting. And then they start falling out of the sky. And I got to cover my head. They're falling all around me. So I'm screaming for Dickie, but all he's all the way back at the rig. Probably got the radio on. He can't hear a thing. And then I hear this sound. It's a low rumbling sound. Like the ground below the kid is belching. 
kind of like those Tibetan monks all hitting that low note in the beginning of their chants. And the kid, I swear to God, starts to rise up off the ground. His arms fall to his sides and his palms turn upwards towards the sky and the birds. And his mouth starts to gape open. And this vibrating is going faster and faster now. So fast I can't really even see his shape. It's like he's becoming blurry and velvety. Like he's disappearing. And then... And then I hear this belching drone become a word. It said, Siwa. And the birds around there sounded like they were repeating it. Siwa, Siwa, Siwa. Like that. And then the whole place, the whole dump starts vibrating with it. It ran through the ground under me and started vibrating through me. And I could hear it in my head. Siwa. My feet, because it was vibrating everywhere, you see, started to sink into the ground, into the trash. And I had to pull myself free. And then slowly it echoed away, flew out of my head and seemed to pass over the trash heaps. There were horses somewhere off in the distance, and they started braying like they were being beaten. And the birds flew off, and there was complete silence. And I ran my ass out of there as fast as I could. Dickie said he didn't hear a thing. He had the radio up, and he had the heater on recirc. I just stopped at a liquor store on my way home from work, and that was two days ago. I've been more or less in the bag since then. And I only made it here because I don't want to keep doing this. And I got to tell somebody. So if you're going to judge me, at least you should hear why I fell off the wagon. Anyway, that's my story. Everyone in the room was silent. And it wasn't gas inside him, I added. I know what gas settling inside somebody sounds like. It doesn't come out sounding like siwa. At least it's never in my life had that sound. Right? You guys? Anybody? I can't make sense of it. It was in my head for a second. And I swear I almost saw a shape of a thing looking out from inside that kid, hidden inside the vibrations. And... And I mean this, I wasn't drinking before that or taking anything. I've been sober two months for the record. They were looking at each other in an ominous recognition that made me feel out of the loop and worried. Well, you ever heard of something like that before? Was it Silwa, Peter Ingram said. Silwa with an L. Silwa. Yeah, that sounds right. Yes, silwa with an L if it were a word. It was more of a note or a sound or a thought than an actual word. And they all nodded. What's silwa? What's silwa? Silwa is a kind of um, 
Well, it's kind of a demon. He's a real piece of shit. He or it or they haunt the borderlands. It's the sound it makes when it breathes, we think. It's how it's got its name. What, are you, are you kidding me? Are you fucking with me? Are you fucking with me right now? He raised his eyebrows. No, we're not fucking with you. We weren't out there. Yeah, but you're just fucking... No, we're not, kid. Bedrock said. And stay out of the dumpsterius. What happened to the kid? What? What did they do with the kid that OD'd? The coroner's got him right now, I think. I don't know. What do they do with dead people after the coroner shows up? They looked at each other. We gotta call Mike. Who, who's Mike? Don't worry about it. How come nobody's talked about this before? Why am I bringing this up? We don't bring it up until the new guy brings it up. You didn't grow up in town, did you, Darius? No, I said. Go and get some coffee and sit down. I think we better bring you up to speed on Rio Vista. And then they talked one after the other, adding to each other's stories. They explained what had been going on in Rio County before it had been settled by the Spanish in the 1500s and the Miwok Indians before that. The Miwoks had a name for it in their language, but it may have come from an even older dialect that the earliest people brought with them as they crossed the land bridge when the world was still in ice. Utoto wa nyota. That's how Bedrock said it. He said it meant the cradle of stars. Or barugdak ti percosa bumi. Which they would not translate for me. I wish someone had told you not to work here, man. Go further up the peninsula or inland. Here we do more than just respond to calls. We have a different duty. You should get out of here tomorrow, man. No joke. I was still completely confused. What are you guys telling me? I'm not sure you want to know, Pete Ingram said. And now we got to send for the others. Go home, Darius, and start looking for another place to work. What work, I said. What? I want to know what I saw. I want to know what I felt out there. I gotta know. And Pete slowly turned to me, and I didn't like what I saw in his eyes. But I stayed. Well, Pete says, if I can't dissuade you, and you absolutely have to stay, and you want to learn more, come back this time next week. (laughs) 